Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 23rd of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The government has been secretly warned that the arrival of tens of thousands of Ukrainian refugees into towns and cities across the country poses a risk to social cohesion and integration. That's according to the Sunday Independent, which reported yesterday that the risks to social cohesion and integration will be greater in deprived communities. Ministers, the says have also been told in a secret cabinet memo that the current humanitarian response could become unsustainable in the coming weeks. The memo says there is a risk that those displaced by war in Ukraine may not be able to secure accommodation, education, income, support or access employment here. The paper also says that at the beginning of July, 36% of the contracts the state has with hotels and B&Bs will have expired and that if as assumed, 250 people arrive in Ireland from Ukraine every day, then 5,000 people could find themselves with nowhere to stay whatsoever. Much needs to be done in the coming weeks to avoid that scenario, but how have we performed so far? Very well, apparently. A paper published today by the new group, Roundtable on Migration in Our Common Home, says Ireland's response to the Ukrainian migrants has been almost exemplary. And this human rights first approach should be the blueprint for a reshaping of Ireland's international protection system. The chair of the group is Social Ireland and it includes members from across civil society, NGOs and academics. Let's uh, speak uh, to Father Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland now. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. The response to this particular refugee crisis from this state has been unique in effect. It has, absolutely. It's uh, almost exemplary, as you said, and it's a human rights first approach, uh, and we would be very positive about that, and uh, the members of the the, the roundtable would basically argue very strongly that that should be the blueprint for a reshaping of Ireland's international protection system. Um, But uh, when we look at it, it's not perfect, it's not without its flaws, and uh, with, I suppose within the, there's a number of flaws within the 
say Irish response. First of all, it's very dependent on the community and voluntary sector to provide supports like coordination of accommodation and teaching English and supporting family placements and so on. Now, it's not that uh, the the, uh, community voluntary sector doesn't want to be making a serious contribution. It does. Uh, and it has shown quite clearly that it has the capacity to do so too. You, we saw that very clearly during COVID. Uh, but it's also important to recognise that it is, you know, it has its limitations. And uh, too much of a reliance on the sector uh, means that in effect, government isn't taking its full responsibility. Like, for example, um, it was the community and voluntary sector who, who kind of pointed out uh, to government that there were safeguarding concerns uh, relating to unaccompanied minors and, in fairness, the government uh, put the relevant protections in place. And I think um, the, the, sector, the community and voluntary sector continues to highlight some of these concerns in respect of accommodation placements mm. that are arranged privately, because there's quite an amount, as we know, we've heard a lot of them in the media about uh, private arrangements between Ukrainian families and an Irish host. And there's very, very good um, relationships being built up there and there's a lot of very good work being done and Irish people are being very generous. But at the same time, uh, there needs to be safeguards always built in and that needs to be looked after before uh, not after uh, you have some kind of problems arising. And you are also concerned, uh, I think, uh, that the government has been taking a, a short-term uh, approach to this, seeing it as a, a temporary problem and that if uh, people need accommodation for three years and they go home, that will be fine, but that may not be the case. Uh, it, it seems uh, from uh, this uh, memo that's gone to government uh, that there could be an even more immediate problem than in three years. We could be looking at people with nowhere to stay uh, from July onwards. I, I think that's a very real danger that needs to be faced up to. Uh, we certainly uh, think that the government has been taking too much of a temporary pr- uh, approach to it. Now, that, that's understandable in the first weeks of, of a response. You know, a war breaks out, uh, people are being killed, people are fleeing, uh, you've got refugees all uh, travelling in all directions. So it's obvious that you need a temporary, quick, fast solution right there there and then. But you have to also plan for the longer term. And all, most of your listeners mm. will be more than aware that the problems uh, that are being identified here on the Ukrainian situation, things like housing and uh, uh, access to education, access to public transport, things like access to health care, uh, access to child care, things of those nature, uh, things of, like that. These are the problems that we had before ever there was Ukraine and before ever there was a, even a COVID situation, these were problems that Ireland was facing and challenges. So what we have here is is, is another layer added on to some very, more or less the same set of issues, yeah. but the challenge is growing. And what the government needs to be doing is, is, is kind of re- recognising that the response to that challenge has to grow so that we do uh, what we should have been doing in the first place before ever there was uh, Ukrainian uh, refugee uh, migration. And then you should also do what's required in addition to ensure that you're dealing with the Ukraine as well. Okay, are, are, are uh, you... The kind of approach we advocate. Are you also concerned uh, that there is a, a risk to social cohesion and integration? As you say, we have historical problems. And if you take one of them, for example, housing, and you've got 10,000 people on the housing 
waiting list, waiting 10 years, uh, and suddenly 30,000 people are added to that list. Uh, People will be annoyed if Ukrainians are getting houses and their waiting time has gone from 10 to 20 years. And that would certainly be the case if government doesn't do what it needs to do, which is to increase its response uh, on the housing front. And that's one of the things that concerns me a bit here. What we're hearing from government is basically a repetition of what was being uh, claimed that they were going to do before these Ukrainian issues uh, came onto the table. What we need to do is do the addition. We need to put on the addition that is required to ensure that uh, that the Ukrainian issues are dealt out, the Ukrainian dimension is dealt with as well as uh, the prior uh, waiting lists, whether like you're talking about in housing mm. and healthcare and so on as well. So it's not a question of saying it's either the Ukrainians or the the the, the, the locals. It's a question of both and. But then that that has to be resourced. Irish people have shown their human hugely. Uh, generous in this kind of context and I think government needs to follow that good example and basically say we need to provide a response on the scale required that deals with the housing issue that deals with the healthcare issue that deals with the education issue uh, that deals with the childcare issue uh, because these as I say are challenges uh, that Mm. uh, were there before ever there was a Ukrainian uh, issue uh, facing policymakers in Ireland. I'd like to read a text that has come in to us uh, if you don't mind from Jim in Navin. He says Michael why is it taken so Six years to find school places for those two boys highlighted last week. The Minister for Education, Norma Foley, and government should be ashamed of themselves. Uh, do they have to be shamed into doing the right thing for parents of these children? Uh, they've gone through a torrid time trying to look after their children. Thousands of school places were found on the spot for Ukrainian kids, which is right, but a system must be put in place now to look after all needy kids, uh, says Jim and Navin. So uh, I think the point of reading that to you, uh, Sean, is that I think Jim is making valid points and he says it's right uh, to uh, look after Ukrainians when they come here in their time of need. Uh, but he's making comparisons, isn't he? Uh, and uh, that, 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 that is where uh, this could go wrong. But exactly, but but I think Jim is right in in highlighting the challenge. That's mm. the scale of the challenge. That's the kind of challenge that we that is being faced. That what happened to those uh, two children over the last uh, number of years was was outrageous and basically totally indefensible. And there shouldn't be situations like that anywhere in the in the Irish education system. Um, in fairness, I think a lot of the response to the education and the situation where where Ukrainians are concerned um, has been quite good and there's been quite an amount of uh, capacity uh, made available and it's, 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 it's mm. not the most difficult of situations. What I'm a bit concerned about is that um, we, have, we have a very serious housing problem. Uh, particularly, and uh, like accommodation is is at a premium, and its cost is dramatic. And I think we need to kind of go at this in a, in 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 a way 
that 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 resolves uh, the the challenge not just of what we had before the Ukrainians came, mm. but the Ukrainian challenge added to it. That means, in, a, in effect, that government shouldn't be coming at us and telling us that they're going to spend this amount of money that they said they were going to spend before ever mm. there was Ukrainian uh, situation. In the housing plan, they're talking about spending $4 billion a year uh, to deal with housing over the next five years. They were talking about that before there was ever a Ukrainian uh, uh, migrant in Ireland. So the, re- the reality is, to deal with, with what's going on, they need to go on top of that, add to it, and they need to be able to say, this is the additional amount that we're putting in there. Okay. And then obviously mm. we have to talk about how we fund that and finance it as well. Mm. Talk to me a little bit more though, just uh, and briefly if we can, about this blueprint uh, that you're saying uh, should be used for how we deal with people seeking refuge in this country because I suppose the question is why are we looking after Ukrainian refugees? Uh, or why are we not treating other refugees the same and looking after them as well? Because God knows there's a terrible war in Ukraine, there's a terrible war in Yemen, there's a, a terrible war in Syria, there's human rights violations of uh, the scale in Afghanistan mm-hmm. uh, and so on. Uh, and you're saying that we should treat all of these refugees equally. Well, that's absolutely. I suppose the question we have is why haven't we done this before? Now, there was an EU directive that was adopted in 2001 in response to the conflict in Kosovo, but it was only triggered for the very first time by the European Council in response to the Ukrainian situation in 2022. So it took 21 years for the EU member states to respond to forced displacement uh, with the, the, the necessary urgency. And what we have uh, in the, what we were had in, in, in Ireland uh, at the beginning of this year was over 8,500 men, women and children living in direct provision system. Now, um, there's been reports on uh, showing that this needs to be changed. There's a white paper on ending direct provision, all of it committing the government to replacing the system by December 2024, which is good. But the bottom line in it, though, is we have to, re- we have to ask ourselves a question honestly. Do we have a category deserving refugee and another category undeserving refugee? And in a way, I was a bit appalled by the response of the punished uh, in the in the rain the doll um, when he was asked a question about this, and he said, like he was asked a question why we were uh, dealing dealing so well with the Ukrainians and not with the rest. And he base his basic response was, well, they're close to us; they're our close neighbours. I, I don't think that's a good enough justification. We should cha- we should realise that refugees are. are all deserving, and there should be no such thing as an undeserving refugees, refugee. Like the wars and disasters and discrimination and climate events and all these things, they're 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 rising across the world, and often uh, there's there's. Uh, they're rising because people, uh, leaders in in the world aren't taking the action that's required, and and and, and like. The question you have to ask is like, why isn't is that uh, Ireland needs? Or sorry, why? I suppose what we'd say to make it positive, we'd say basically all refugees are human beings. They've all been displaced. They've all had to leave their home un- unwillingly. They should be treated fairly 
and the same in Ireland. There shouldn't be different categories for them. Uh, and and you're making... the human rights approach that we, human rights first approach that we're using for the Ukrainians is a model for what, how we should deal with everybody else okay. who's a refugee in Ireland, an asylum seeker and so on. Okay, these arguments are, are made in the paper that's been published today by the Round Table on Migrations in Our Common Home, chaired by Social Justice Ireland. Sean, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. That's Father Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. The British government has promised to, to legislate to change the Northern Ireland Protocol. As you know, this is a solo run. The UK acting unilaterally uh, to change an agreement it has with the European Union without Europe agreeing to the changes. Let's speak to Ireland's European Commissioner, Mairead McGuinness, who joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Commissioner, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. How does Europe feel about uh, the way the British government is behaving? Well, good morning, Michael, and glad to be with you. To your question, um, I think there's a sense of deja vu here because this is not the first time where we have heard the UK side declare uh, that they will take unilateral action. I think there's a sense of, I mean, huge, I suppose, frustration because we were all being very conscious that there was an election in Northern Ireland and therefore in the run-up to that election there was calm around the protocol so that we wouldn't be part of that election process. Um, and now we had hoped that once the Assembly elections took place we would get down to business, which is agreeing, negotiating and compromising around the, the remaining difficult issues in terms of implementation of the protocol. And now on the, we hear that the UK side are not at that place at all. What they're doing is coming to the table at some point, but putting their red line very firmly down and saying, if we don't get this, then we walk. Um, And it's not a good way to negotiate. Um, You know, we are colleagues, allies, friends when it comes to the aggression in Ukraine. So we're working well together at that level. We need the same relationships to resolve the difficulties around the protocol. And they're not major, but for some reason they get embroiled, I believe, in internal politics in the Conservative Party, hard lines being, uh, if you had laid out, and then a sense in which what is the way back from that? So we've been very, I suppose, calm and measured in our reaction, but it's not acceptable. I mean, that is how we feel about this, that we negotiated a treaty in good faith that Boris Johnson agreed to and said it was a, a very good agreement. And he's now pulling away from that with this latest twist in the Brexit saga. Mm, a brilliant deal. Uh, is Europe united uh, in how it will respond, or will it be united in how it will respond uh, to the British government if it goes ahead with this legislation and changes uh, the protocol? Uh, because there seems to be a view in British politics uh, that there's division in Europe because of the Ukrainian war and that it has won some countries over. Well, I note that actually in the press myself, but to your question, is there unity? There is absolute unity because when the uh, member states agree something, as they did around the approach to Brexit, including resolving the complex issue of Northern Ireland, um, that is the agreement and there is unity of purpose around that. You will have heard some prime ministers last week declaring that, yes, we want solutions to the problems, but we're not renegotiating the protocol. To the uh, idea that, yes, the British prime minister has had visits to some member states because they're dealing in a similar way with the Russian aggression in Ukraine, that that might change their view. 
I'm not so sure about that. Um, we do need to work together globally on the sanctions that we're implementing around Russia and indeed Belarus. Uh, but in my view, that should not spill over into a softening of our position, because in, in one sense, we have been very, um, I suppose, we've been very flexible. Uh, if we were to implement the protocol in a hardline way, we would not have come forward last October with a very considerable package of measures to help on implementation. And the one thing we've done very clearly, and Maros Stefkovic, my colleague, has he has done this. He's been to Northern Ireland. He's constantly in touch with business and communities. And he's trying to find practical solutions to the problems they face. And again, to go back to the elections, to the Assembly, the majority who are elected to the Assembly don't want the protocol scrapped. They favour the protocol because it gives access to Northern Ireland to the single market and, of course, the, the UK internal market. But they want the, you know, the implementation issues dealt with. And the way to deal with those, as we have said, is around the table not to bring forward a law in the House of Commons, which again will take time. And I suppose that's the frustration, Mm. that we could resolve these issues now. But if the UK persists with uh, insisting on going the legislative route, that takes a long time. So you have huge uncertainty in Northern Ireland, both for businesses and indeed political uncertainty. Uh, And then we will need to respond because we can't just sit back and say, well, that's fine, we'll wait and see what happens, but we'll also be extremely measured. Okay, that law would be domestic legislation Mm -hmm. for the United Kingdom. Uh, Would it be legal in terms of an international agreement? Well, in our belief, once uh, two parties sign uh, an agreement, an international agreement, it is law. And one party uh, cannot overrule that agreement, overrule its own signature, by, by drafting and uh, putting a law through their own parliament. I mean, that is not how international treaties work. So in our view, that's not the way to go, and it shouldn't be done, because first of all, we believe it's not legal, and secondly, it doesn't help relationships. And at the end of the day, all negotiations rest on trust, flexibility, and compromise. Mm. And I think when you are faced with a, a partner who you know, comes into the room, takes what you've put on the table, goes outside and says, well, we're, we're not happy with that, but we're going to impose our own solution. That's not how negotiations work. And therefore, we have to find a path back to uh, negotiations at the table because it will not be resolved uh, in this way. It will not be resolved over the media or in opinion pieces or by legislation drafted by one side. I've heard a, a number of British politicians say it is legal. Of course it's legal, because there's a provision in the Northern Ireland Protocol which makes it permissible to do this. Uh, and Article 16 uh, is there for a reason. Uh, so because Article 16 is there, well then, uh, there's nothing illegal about it. Yeah, well, I mean, they're not using Article 16, as you know, in this particular case. So they're, they're finding, of course, they're going to say it's legal because, it's, uh, you know, they're doing it. And in one sense, I was going to say the word threat. And that, that, that's what it is, in a sense. It's a threat to um, our side, if you like, to the European Union, that if you don't do what we want, then we will go this route. Uh, again, not a good way to negotiate. In our view, and I go back to the point, if you remember how this all happened, there were you know, change of leaders uh, in the Conservative Party. There was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of kind of crisis moments in this Brexit saga. And then there was a meeting between our Prime Minister and the then Taoiseach Leo Varadkar at which the protocol issues were resolved and were then, you know, drafted by the drafters and then signed and agreed by both sides. 
And immediately that happened, one would have thought everything should work. There were then implementation issues, and there's no doubt for some sectors and some communities in Northern Ireland, there are difficulties with this. And I, I, I can hear very well the unionist community and their concerns. But I would again repeat to everybody that the way to address those concerns is not to take unilateral action, but rather to negotiate. And I'm sure if Europe had come forward with a very strong message of saying, well, we don't agree with you, we're doing it our way, it's our way or no way, Uh, that would not go down very well because it wouldn't be the way to approach a difficult problem that needs to be solved. Can you tell me what wouldn't go down very well will mean in effect, uh, as I understand it, the European Union would have the option of taking legal action and seeking redress under a a dispute settlement under the trade agreement, or there's uh, the potential for placing tariffs on goods. What consideration has been given to those issues or other issues for that matter? Well, in in the previous time when we had a similar scenario, um, we we excuse me, proposed infringement proceedings, and then we froze that action at, at a certain point because we didn't want to um, add fuel to the fire. So we will have to look again, and, and we will be guided by Mara Shevkovich, who speak to us this week. Um, and then I see people suggesting trade wars. All of these things are, are, are not good, given the global climate we are in. They're not necessary because we can solve the problem. Uh, and equally, they take a long time. My worry is that if you t- look at Northern Ireland, they've just had an election. Unfortunately, the Assembly is not sitting, and we know why. And it would not be good for Northern Ireland, for its uh, politics, or indeed for its business, that there's uncertainty around the protocol. Because already it's been implemented, but there's great periods and there's flexibility. And that can last for some time, but... Those who are thinking of investing in Northern Ireland because it has access to the European single market, and there are many who are thinking of that, they won't do that unless they have certainty. So the longer we you know, fail to reach uh, an agreed settlement around the table, the more difficult it is for business in Northern Ireland to reap the rewards of access to the single market. And therefore, that's not a good place to be, including the, the political difficulties for Uh, One party are saying they will not allow the Assembly function unless they get a particular outcome around the protocol. So I think people need to pull back from those very extreme places and find a way forward that fully respects concerns, cross-community concerns, and equally allows Northern Ireland to reap the rewards of what is a very, very unique situation. And again, my discussions uh, over time with business, agriculture, civil society is, yes, Yep, solve the problems, solve the difficulties around certain products coming in, too many checks, etc. But don't deny us access to the single market. And again, the majority of uh, MLAs have said that, and they've said that to Boris Johnson. Now, he's, he's read that as saying that the majority want the protocol to be changed, rather than saying the majority want the protocol to remain, but they want the difficulties around implementation to be addressed. So these are all subtle points, sometimes lost in translation, but at the end of the day, no matter how long this takes, the only place it will be resolved is not in the House of Commons or indeed here in Brussels alone, acting unilaterally, it's together. So however we get there, and I think that is perhaps the difficulty now, how do we restore some element of, you know, a good relationship, but more trust uh, so that we can reach that compromise that's needed. Commissioner, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme today. That is Mairead McGuinness, uh, the European Commissioner for Financial Services, Financial Stability and Capital Markets Union. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. LMFM.
Well, as you know, two formerly neutral countries, Finland and Sweden, have applied to join NATO. That leaves four countries in the European Union who are not in NATO. That's Ireland, Austria, Malta and Cyprus. The former Finnish Prime Minister Alexander Stubb said last week, it's very difficult to be neutral in a conflict like the one that's going on with the Russian invasion. And he said it's all about their commitment as far as the four countries are concerned in how they react and how far they want to stretch their own neutrality in the Irish case and in the Austrian case. It is indeed, or at least uh, you would think it is, uh, and what we want to do uh, and how far we want to stretch our neutrality, as we put it, will be discussed on Thursday evening at a public meeting. Let's speak to Jim Roach, who's uh, the PRO of the Irish Anti-War Movement, uh, which is organising this meeting. And a very good morning to you, Jim Roach, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, Obviously, you'd like Ireland to remain neutral. What do you think of uh, Finland and Sweden? Sweden joining NATO. Good morning, Michael, and thank you uh, for having me on. Uh, I'm disappointed. Uh, I, I'm particularly disappointed with Finland. I have a personal relationship with Finland. I lived there for two and a half years. So, uh, and Finland had so much going for it. It had uh, one of the most like developed countries in the world. And this is many decades ago now that I lived there. Uh, and there's a, there's a reason why it was neutral, of course, uh, be, because. Um, well, as we know, it was invaded by Stalin's army in 1939. Uh, it fought them off, like, really valiantly. Uh, uh, but then, it, um, as the war developed, uh, they reached some kind of agree- peace agreement. But then, as the war developed, it sided with Nazi Germany and allowed uh, Nazi German troops to pass through Finland to get at, at Russia. So, uh, Further conflict developed, and the, the peace agreement that was reached at the end of the Second World War in Finland uh, was, um, you know, pretty mm. bad for Finland. It lost about 12% of, of the eastern part of the country in Karelia. The Russian army was uh, um, uh, in uh, uh, very close to Helsinki in the uh, little island, the fortress island of Svomandina, right up until the late 50s, I think. But it paid back reparations to Russia and uh, maintained this neutral stance then. And I had a very good relationship with uh, sorry, the, the Soviet Union mm. and the West uh, for decades. And uh, I, so I, I, but it still had, I mean, it was still a military country in, in that it had conscription for all males and uh, it, um, it had, you know, had an army and spent a, a fair bit on mm. on uh, its military and had a very um, fortified border with Russia, but a very good relationship. And in fact, but I imagine the, the argument that's won over in Finland and in Sweden is uh, that they are better protected now from a, a possible or, or potential invasion by Russia because an attack on one NATO country is an attack well, on all. I know, and that's, but that's the danger. I, I wonder, are, will they be... I just wanted to mention one, one mm, further sure, thing that yeah. Finland was very involved with was peace, peace negotiations between mm. the so- former Soviet Union and uh, 
uh, NATO, particularly America, and they, they were held in, in Helsinki over many years, you know. So hmm. I wonder, are they more protected? OK, well, well, that's the argument, I imagine, that has won over in Finland and, and, and Sweden. Uh, it's an argument that hasn't been won here yet. Uh, you're highlighting that recent Irish Times poll on neutrality and how 66% want us to stay neutral, uh, 24% against. Uh, and uh, this is the backdrop, uh, I suppose, really to this meeting that you're holding on Thursday. It is indeed. I mean, it, it is very interesting, the, the move towards um, uh, getting rid of Ireland's neutrality is very clear among the political establishment, uh, if you like, the, the larger parties of, of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, and a lot of the corporate media. And it's very interesting that the poll, like that latest Ipsos poll in April, 66% of people, you know, clearly saying they want to retain Ireland's neutrality. So where we've decided to have this meeting, we're in in discussions with ourselves, the Irish Anti-Warman and the Peace and Neutrality Alliance, PANA, are in discussions with various um, politicians uh, with, with, within the Dáil and the Senate. And we've decided to, you know, kick off with a, a, an initial public meeting where we've Richard Boyd Barrett and Chris Andrews, TDs, Senator uh, Alice Mary Higgins, joining us, Carl Fox from Panama. We have two international speakers, one, um, Matthew Ho, who's a former U.S. Marine, and uh, it will be standing for the Senate in America. And then Dr. Yuri Shelyashenko, who is a, U- a secretary of the Ukrainian pacifist movement. So it will be a really interesting meeting. And it would be, I'm really interested to hear the, the, our, the, our international uh, speakers, what their perspective on is and on the meaning of neutrality. And um, like for me, the, the, the meaning of neutrality, it, it isn't that we don't do anything. We've been very clear in our condemnation of Russia's uh, invasion of of mm. Ukraine, uh, uh, but we, we've also said that it looks like more and more like it's becoming this awful war of attrition, and that the the NATO uh, powers have have helped escalate that. So, um, I, I mean, what neutrality means really is, as, as Richard Boyd Barrett, who is our, the president of the IWM, said in the Dáil in, in a debate that the tradition of Irish neutrality means standing against all warmongers and with the oppressed of the world. So, in, in the case of Russia, mm. we condemn what it's doing in Ukraine, what it did in Kazakhstan, what it's done in Georgia, and what it did in Afghanistan decades ago. So, we're, 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 so, we're, we're, not, so we're not afraid to tut-tut uh, but are we cowards? No, I don't think so, because uh, there's this rush to militarization now around the world, and it's particularly happening, uh, as, as you mentioned, there with, with uh, Finland, Sweden, but throughout Europe as well. But the, like, there's this, there is another force at play here, and that is, of course, the, the military-industrial complex, which is uh, lasting all the way to the bank, you know, and there's a lot of money to, 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 to be made about this, of, you know, people getting killed in Ukraine, both Ukrainian civilians and soldiers, and then uh, young Russian conscripts getting killed, while the the uh, people in the war industry, the masters of war, are, are uh, laughing their heads off. So uh, we're not tut-tutting. We're calling for dialogue. We're calling for peace. We feel the Irish government should be offering to facilitate dialogue and that in a... a, a uh, campaign of positive but we, but we let Ukrainian boys die fighting them off or we let British uh, and French boys die fighting off uh, the Nazis uh, in uh, the 40s 
Yeah, look, I, I didn't, okay, I, the, I, I don't think we're in that space, uh, 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 and I, I don't think it's a fair comparison with, with, with the Second World War. And uh, No, but uh, in the context of neutrality, uh, I, I think it's a, a fair point, is it not, and that in the current context, it's Ukrainian boys who are trying to fight them off. Yes, that's true, but there, there have been... There have been uh, well. By, by by the way, it's, it's Ukrainian boys and girls as well. You know, mm-hmm. so um, mm-hmm. there, there there have been uh, moments for like there have been efforts at dialogue by 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 the Ukrainians and the Russians. They have not been helped at all by the Western powers. In fact, uh, um, you know, Biden and Johnson have just been egging on the the Ukrainian and and saying no. We and I mean it, it's. It shows in the things they've been saying, where they say, you know, we want to weaken Russia. Uh, we need to help Ukraine win this war. In fact, uh, I know you have uh, the Irish uh, EU commissioner on at some stage, or maybe she has been on. She said back in March in an interview on RT, we have to help Ukraine win this war. I mean, shocking thing for for um, an Irish politician to be saying. What we should be saying is we have to stop the war and win, help Ukraine win the peace here because uh, the the alternative is, as I've said, this awful war of attrition, uh, which will just uh, kill mm. so many people. You know. Mm. Okay, but if Russia continues to be aggressive uh, and the Ukrainians don't fight back and win. Uh, well, then Ukrainians well, lose the war. That's if you fail to stop the war. Uh, and that, I, I suppose, is where this uh, conversation becomes complicated. You're going to have a, a very heated uh, debate, I imagine, based on uh, some of uh, the speakers uh, that you mentioned there. Um, there'll be opinions on both sides. It's at 7 o'clock in Wynn's Hotel on Thursday. I have to leave it there for the moment, though, Jim. And thank you indeed for joining us, as always. Thank Jim, you, Michael. Thank you. Jim Roach is uh, the PRO of the Irish Anti-War Movement. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the wheels of uh, justice sometimes uh, turn slowly in uh, the case of uh, getting justice and answers to questions uh, about uh, the death of Shane O'Farrell near his home in County Monaghan almost uh, 11 years ago. Uh, those wheels have all but stopped. Uh, it seems as though the questions that have been asked time and again over the course of the last 11 years uh, remain uh, unanswered and will do for some time to go to come. Why was the man Zygmantus Grzyzewski, uh, who uh, killed Shane in a hit-and-run incident, at large at the time of the accident and why was he extradited afterwards? Uh, The reason these questions have not been answered is because a scoping operation has been underway uh, for a number of years now. Uh, In relation to um, the the death of Shane O'Farrell and the scoping um, exercise, uh, I have met with the family uh, most recently, the Deputy Smith, uh, you raised that uh, initially earlier. Um, and just to say that um, it is a very, very um, harrowing case, a very sad uh, situation. I would hope that the scoping inquiry will be brought to completion very, very quickly um, at this stage, uh, because it has been ongoing now for nearly uh, three years at this stage. Um, COVID and so forth hasn't helped. But that said, 
No, the family have made detailed submissions. The family have presented to me in relation to many of the issues that they're concerned about in respect of the scoping inquiry. But I do think before any decision is taken, your government do need to see, I think everybody needs to see the scope inquiry published. But that will not in itself prejudice the decision of, of government in respect of the initiation uh, of, of a public inquiry. Um, but um, it is important that we would bring that to, we would bring that to um, um, a conclusion uh, because a lot of pain and anguish has been felt by the O'Farrell family um, as we speak in respect of the tragic death of Shane. Um, and the, as I say, the, once the Minister gets to the report, um, you know, the AG will give advice. We'll publish the report uh, and any other issues that, that arise from that advice. Um, and uh, so hopefully now we can bring that to a conclusion in terms of the scoping part of it fairly quickly. And I think Deputy O'Rourke raised that as well. That's uh, the Taoiseach Mihal Martin responding to Sinn Féin in uh, the Dáil last week. Let's uh, speak uh, to Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin TD for Cavan Monaghan now. A very good morning to you, Matt. Thanks uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Tell us uh, about this scoping inquiry. It's been going on for three years. What is a, a scoping inquiry? Well, good morning, Michael, and hello to your listeners. Yes, and the scoping inquiry in itself can only be taken in the context to what has been, in my view, an absolute um, coordinated, structured, um, systematic failure on the part of the uh, on the part of the the forces of the state and the services of the state to deny. Um, a full public inquiry. Recall, if you will, that the scope and inquiry was actually in response to motions that were unanimously passed, or at least by majority passed, by both houses of the Oireachtas, the Dáil and the Shannon, that called for a, pu- a full public independent in- inquiry. But this um, isn't an inquiry. This really is laying the groundwork for whether there will be or won't be an inquiry, isn't and it? And rather than delivering on the will of the Oireachtas, the then government initiated a scoping inquiry in, in early 2019. How does which, a scoping inquiry take three years, though? There is no logical explanation. Scoping inquiries, by their nature, are expected to take weeks, possibly months, but never years. Mm. And, and yet we're three years on from you'd the... Be, you'd be frustrated if a public inquiry was running for three years. Absolutely. And again, this has to be taken in the context to previous um, delays and frustrations because the GSOC inquiries into this case took almost six years, six years for which no action followed. And the problem from the family's perspective, and I think from the wider Mm. public, because there are clear issues of public interest and public concern Mm. in terms of how this matter was dealt with, but by a number of state agencies, particularly the Gardaí, but also the DPP, the court services and, uh, and others. But during the period of those six years, questions that were put to various ministers for justice and those state agencies were brushed off saying we can't answer these questions because there is a GSOC inquiry underway. Now we know that that GSOC um, report was actually most significant primarily for its omissions um, and it was following that that the Oireachtas passed resolutions calling for an independent public inquiry. Now we have a situation, and you've heard this mm. in terms of the Taoiseach's remarks on the 17th of May that you've just played, um, you know, where he has indicated that, well, really, we can't answer questions now due to the fact that this scoping inquiry is taking place. And that brings me to my original point. It is my view that, and this is no inference on um, former Judge Houghton, who is carrying out this scoping inquiry, he's been given a 
job with terms of reference and he is he is doing that. Um, I wish it would happen much quicker, but it's not an, an inference on him. Rather, it's an inference on the Department of Justice than rather than allowing uh, um, the full public inquiry to take place, actually put in place a mechanism that further frustrates the ability of the O'Farrell family and others. Because as I say, these, this is a public interest case of the highest order you mentioned. Yeah. The man who killed Shane should have been behind bars. Mm. There, you know, the, the litany of failures that goes back a number of minutes before mm. Shane was killed, when his killer was in a car that was stopped by the Gardaí, a man who was in breach of several bail conditions, the action of the Gardaí was to move that man from the passenger seat to the driver's seat of a car that had no tax insurance or NCT and was clearly not roadworthy. It goes back to multiple um, court appearances mm. where in breach of one bail condition, he was then remanded on further, further bail when he was supposed to be signing on daily um, at um, a Garda station. Mm. For one period of the time, he was actually imprisoned north of the border. And all of this information has come about not because of any of the inquiries that I've, mm. I've referenced, either the Garda inquiry, the court cases, the um, GSOC inquiry, or any of the other official challenge, challenges. All of this information came about because of the relentless work mm. of Shane's mother, a grieving mm. parent who should have been allowed to get the full answers to why her son was killed by somebody who should have been in prison at the time. She has actually painstakingly brought this information into the public domain um, at her own initiative. And that, to me, is absolutely scandalous. But mm. each time she has unearthed information in relation to this case, all it has done has reinforced the need for a public inquiry. And you, you played the Taoiseach. You know, the Taoiseach told the Oireachtas, when he was the leader of the opposition. Yeah. This is a direct quote. In all honesty and sincerity, it is time the Oireachtas responded in the only way possible to Shane's death, which is the establishment of an inquiry. Mm. It's a, that was true then, and it's still true now. It's a, a very complicated story in some ways. Uh, but in reality, I mean, we're not talking about the beef tribunal or the planning tribunal or an inquiry on, on that scale. We're talking about a, a young man uh, being knocked down in a hit and run that killed him. Uh, quite probably not too far off the mark to say that your man was driving like a, a bat out of hell, stoned off his head on heroin at the time. And he killed Shane and he continued to drive. He then hid his, he then hid his car um, and then when he came before the courts, he was given the option of returning home to his own country, to his own son. Um, and as I say... No the, justice. The list of questions that are um, at the heart of this case, but here's, you know, just in terms of the facts that I've read out there, like, they are serious breaches in terms of systemic breaches. And as well as no justice being found for Shane and for his family, there are questions in terms of the fact that there are no accountability for anybody that is responsible for those failures. And some would suspect, I've no doubt, that part of the rationale for the delays in all of these cases is that by the time we ultimately get the truth, those people who were responsible for those failures will have retired, moved on, um, um, be, moved beyond the reach of accountability. And that's a story that's all too familiar in terms of how we do accountability in this country. I'm a member of the Public Accounts Committee and on much lesser issues we see time and time again where huge um, in, you know, expenditure or misuse of public finances or where there have been breaches 
in terms of mm. protocol or whatever the case may be, that by the time the truth emerges, it's too late to actually hold people accountable. OK, and but uh, as you say, uh, there's no doubt Judge Hockton is acting honourably, but what is uh, the problem? Um, should that be explained? Uh, I mean, is he facing obstacles in getting information or, or why is it? It just seems so crazy to think that this is a, a scoping exercise which really, uh, as you say, shouldn't take much longer than a number of weeks in a, a story as straightforward albeit a complicated one as it is but it, it has to do with one individual being killed by another individual uh, and it's straightforward in, in that sense uh, but uh, three years on uh, surely there should be some explanation for the family I think an explanation would be very helpful the only thing that we have been told in terms of responses um, by the Minister for Justice is that um, and the former Judge Houghton has been you know, engaging with various parties to this and seeking, seeking information. There was one inference by a previous Minister for Justice, very unhelpfully, who tried to suggest or infer that there was a difficulty in terms of getting information from the family, um, which obviously was not true at, at all and had no basis in, in fact. But I, I do think we need to have a very clear statement as to when precisely this um, scope and inquiry will be completed and when um, the findings will be provided and the rationale for any delays. But what I have been calling for for the past number of years, um, particularly the last two years when, it, when we knew that this scope and inquiry was running in much longer than we would have anticipated, was for the building blocks, the basis for the public inquiry to be set now. Because my fear is that we will have this scope and inquiry, there will be a delay in relation to its publication as there often is when um, individuals or organisations feel under threat, they will try and delay and frustrate the publication of it. And then we will have a significant period of time before we actually get to a decision that a public inquiry will be established. And then we have to go through a whole new um, process again. So I do think time is off the essence here because the failures are so profound and, and, and go to the heart of whether or not we can have absolute confidence in our justice system. Um, because clearly, you know, the, 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 the forces um, of the state do not have the ability to prevent every death. We understand that. But the least that any of us and any family should expect is if their um, child is unlawfully killed, that they will have the full answers as to what and where mistakes were, were made. And in this instance, I'm not sure if there were mistakes or if there were absolute disregards for the legal provisions that were in place. But one way or another, Shane O'Farr was failed. The community of Cartmore Cross was failed. His family were failed. And they all deserve answers. And we all deserve answers to so that we can ensure that nobody else has failed to such an extent in the future. OK, Matt, we'll leave there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin TD for Cavan Monaghan. Uh, Pat and Carrick McCross on the phone to us uh, saying it'll take 10 years to rebuild Ukraine. If the war stopped tomorrow, it would take years to build back housing. The refugees that come here will start families, they'll settle down and probably won't return home. I don't think people have thought all of this through. Uh, Thanks uh, for sharing that with us uh, on the phone there. Uh, We'd uh, Paul uh, in touch with us uh, following our interview with Jim Roach of the Irish Anti-War Movement. He says, the whole thing is a joke. If we went to war, we would be wiped out in minutes. Uh, So I take it uh, Paul thinks we should remain neutral. Thank you indeed uh, for that and to everybody who's been in touch with us so far today. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. LMFM. 
Interesting headline in the Irish Independent today revealed the councils that issued no dog fouling fines in five years. And it seems uh, that in Leitrim, Monaghan and Kilkenny, no fines have been issued for the past five years. Uh, The situation is somewhat better in County Meath. According to the Indo today, they issued 13 fines in 2018 and 2019, but there have been no fines at all in the last three years. Uh, Let's uh, talk uh, to local Fine Gael councillor Noel French, who's on the line, and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, this is something you've been highlighting over a, a long period of time. Can you make any sense of it? Uh, no, I can't really. Uh, um, there were no fines uh, up till 2013 and then every year following that I asked uh, a question in February of each year how many fines uh, were there the previous years and uh, there was two and three and so on. And uh, about 2019, I stopped asking because I was just uh, sick of it, really. Uh, there might be three or four fines issued and maybe one or two of those uh, paid. And I tried to come up with, and I researched, uh, trying to prevent uh, dog fouling. Uh, and it's, it's a problem everywhere. Uh, and uh, we've the, the council spends a lot of money mm. on advertising uh, with LMFM and other places uh, uh, about dog poop, pick it up and so on. Mm. Uh, uh, the people Maybe the uh, ads are working, are they? No, they're not. Okay. Uh, let, let, let me uh, let, let, let me give the other side of the, the story, though, because Mead County, Can- Mead County Council is quoted in the paper. Uh, a spokesperson said prosecutions are extremely difficult because the burden of proof is so high, and where members of the public report instances, they had to be willing to give evidence in court. Uh, that's the explanation, I suppose, from the council's perspective. That's part of the explanation. The other part of the explanation is that when they do issue fines, uh, the people who uh, are issued with the fines uh, are not worth pursuing because it costs. It would cost so much in legal fees to 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 chase them, and they'd end up uh, with uh, an extremely high legal bill, and uh, there would be no fines paid because. Uh, the people are unable to pay the fines. Um, it's a horrible, disgusting thing. It's uh, it's uh, completely and utterly irresponsible people. There are 99% of dog owners are very responsible. They love their pets. Mm. They look after them. They look after them well. There's dog owners uh, laughing at you now, listening to the radio, going, <laughs> your man, sure. What do you expect us to do? I mean, it is only natural that a, a dog goes to the toilet. Uh, it's always been the way. And people didn't run around with these silly little bags and all of that years ago. So why should I be doing it now? Well, they should be doing it now because if they're not, they're not being socially responsible. Now they're in stitches. Now, now, now they're in stitches. What? Uh, Michael, can you imagine uh, a wheelchair user oh, yeah. child mm. going, uh, going around the streets mm. of Trenton, wherever. Mm. They come home, 
their hands are covered. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I agree with you, but you're preaching to the converted. I agree with you. I know I'm preaching to the converted. Yeah, the, the, vast, the, vast majority, the vast majority of people agree with you, including dog owners. Most people, I think, pick up after the dogs. 99% of dog yeah, owners agree with me. 99 yes, and that's the, that's the point. It's, it's this... Yeah. But it only takes one dog. I mean, if I walk my dog up your street every single day and I don't pick up after me, it won't be very long before uh, there's a trail of dog poo. I mean, if it goes once a day or twice a day on your street, seven times, there's 14 lumps there uh, and that continues. So it just doesn't take uh, an awful lot uh, uh, for this to happen. Uh, But it's that small minority who are laughing at you, uh, who uh, will not be convinced that they're wrong uh, because they think it's ridiculous. So if something is to be done, there needs to be another approach. And I suppose that's the point I'm trying to make to you. Okay, okay. Uh, I won't walk up the street here with my dog because I don't have a dog because I can't have a dog because I I'm not, I couldn't be responsible for a dog. A dog would be at home on his own all day. Yeah. And it would be cruelty to, to the dog. So what these people are doing is actually treating their dog disgracefully. Mm. And if they treat their dog and their community disgracefully, then are they suitable to be dog owners? Well, okay, you've preempted my next question, which should be, uh, in terms of taking a different uh, approach, uh, should there be somebody dedicated to policing this and should there be a a different way uh, of penalising people? If you're doing that, maybe a a serious on-the-spot fine uh, and that this happens regularly, uh, and if you're caught a second or third or fourth time or something like that, that perhaps the dog would be confiscated off you because you'd be deemed irresponsible, not responsible enough to own a dog. Absolutely. So I was going to say that. Oh, sorry. Ah, sorry. Ah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. You said it much better than I. As I say, if people are so irresponsible with their dogs that they won't pick up, they are uh, they are virtually uh, showing themselves up as irresponsible people, irresponsible to their community, irresponsible to their pet. 99% of pet owners pick up dog poo. Mm. And I have no problem with those. Those people are great. They, uh, they are responsible. The other uh, 1% or maybe even less than 1% uh, I question should they be dog owners, to be honest. To be honest. Mm, okay. Uh, and um, do you think that that will happen or anything like that will happen? Or will we no. continue to have the no. situation where the vast majority of people are disgusted every time they walk down the street, at the dirt on the street, uh, and the behaviour of people because they're dirty people who won't pick up after their dogs and that uh, isn't just uh, because of the poo and the dirt that comes in but there's the risk of disease and all of that and how it puts uh, buggies and wheelchairs and all that and that they'll continue to laugh at at anybody who says that they should be picking up after them Uh, It is becoming more and more socially unacceptable uh, uh, to allow your dog to, to leave the poo behind it is becoming more and more and to a certain extent, the advertising and the promotion uh, is is there. But you're always going to get the few that will just absolutely I- I- ignore it. 
and no matter what fines are issued, uh, as you said, they're laughing at me. And I have uh, a Cork County Council, uh, I think in the last 20 years, had five fines for dog fouling. Mm. All five fines took place in one month, where uh, about six or seven years ago, when they had a dog fouling campaign. Before that, and after that, there were no dog fouling fines. Mm. So, uh, I, I, I get, and, and as I say, uh, our council spent so much money uh, trying to make people aware. They are getting through. They are getting through. I ha- it is noticeable that there is less dog fouling. But when it happens, it is just totally and utterly disgusting. Mm. Yeah, and there's a lot of places it's not cleaned up either. If it wasn't for the rain, <laughs> it would be there forever. Um, somebody says public parks are covered in dog poo and some people pick it up and then throw the bag in the hedges. Uh, tar- absolutely. You, you, you've seen that, have you? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. That's, so that's as bad, isn't it? Some, some parks are, are, are pretty bad. Yeah, I, I, again, I have... Where's the logic in that, Michael? You know, uh, somebody picking up mm. the dog poo in a plastic bag and then throwing it up on the hedge. Well, yeah. At least it would decay without the... And uh, again, farm animals can ingest these things. And mm. it can be very detrimental. It has killed horses and killed other animals. All right, well, I, I think uh, deaf ears is uh, the turn of phrase that comes to mind uh, when it comes uh, to those who uh, do the wrong thing and act deplorably, as is the case every single day. Uh, but we'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks uh, for joining us, as always, on this. Noel French, Finnegale Councillor on Meath County Council. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, I, I think uh, there was a, a lot of interest, certainly, and uh, some delight uh, when we heard last week uh, that the Speaker of the United States House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, warned the British government about unilaterally making changes to the Northern Ireland Protocol. She said if they did that, went on that solo run without coming to an agreement with the European Union, that they wouldn't be able to strike a trade deal with the United States. A similar message has been sent by Richard Neal to uh, the British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss. Uh, Mr. Neal is another Democrat and he's heading up a nine-strong US congressional delegation to this country and to Britain and tomorrow we'll also uh, address uh, Shanna Darren. Uh, let's speak to Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at New UI, NUI Galway and a political columnist with the journal.ie. Good morning to you, Larry Donnelly, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. How significant are, are these two statements, uh, the uh, information at least that was imparted by Richard Neal to Liz Truss, that there won't be a trade deal as far as he's concerned, uh, and indeed the statement then by Nancy Pelosi. I think they're very significant, Michael. There's no mistaking that. Uh, I think that, look, this is not a situation we want to be in. Uh, Ireland-UK relations are at a very bad uh, ad at the moment. But that having been said, uh, the clear, consistent messaging from Washington to the effect that uh, the UK is not going to get a trade deal with the United States if it proceeds down this track, uh, that's really, really welcome. Uh, and I should say that uh, you know, to those who say that Irish America's influence is on the wane or that Ireland doesn't have the same sway uh, that it once did on Capitol Hill, um, this is quite extraordinary in the sense that 
you know, the, the, the position of the Congressional Friends of Ireland Caucus has been elevated to the level of the policy uh, of the House of Representatives, the United States Senate, uh, and the White House. And I think it's also worth noting um, that this is bipartisan. There are Republicans who feel every bit as strongly about this uh, as Democrats, and we see that with the delegation that's visiting Ireland right now. Again, uh, Democrats and Republicans. So, uh, again, Michael, we're in a position we don't want to be in, but it is comforting to know um, that, uh, that the United States has our back. Okay, and put it into context, if you will, how you see this visit, uh, this uh, journey here by this bipartisan group, uh, and uh, indeed what that will mean uh, in terms of the message from America to Britain. Uh, I think it's sending a very clear signal, and the signal is this, uh, that acting unilaterally, unilaterally, as Liz Truss has proposed, uh, is not the way to go about this. The way to go about this is to get people around uh, the negotiating table. And again, uh, not just not just the Americans have been saying this, but Bertie Ahern has been saying this very uh, loudly as well. Um, and the, you know, look, there is some. This should be some room for maneuver. I mean, I am sympathetic to the extent that you know, in North, the the goods that are destined to remain in Northern Ireland, that there's some level of bureaucracy around that. Uh, if there are things that can be done to ameliorate that situation, then you know, let's talk about it. Let's see what can be ironed out. Uh, you know, with the, you know between the UN and uh, and the UK, uh, let's talk about that. But uh, you know, acting unilaterally, acting in this way, uh, is only going to invoke the ire of the European Union, which cannot stand idly by. The European Union would have to uh, unleash sanctions, and we'd be looking at uh, down the barrel of a trade war that would have negative consequences for uh, everybody. So nobody wants this to happen, and I think negotiation is the answer here. Okay, I see Richard Neal quoted in uh, the papers uh, today, speaking yesterday in Kerry, describing the US as a a guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, I I suppose that spells out how committed uh, the United United States is to the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, absolutely. I think a bit of context around that, Michael, is important to establish. Uh, If we look at American foreign policy over the last three decades, say, uh, the reality is there is precious little uh, to celebrate. Uh, the, it, the United States' role, George Mitchell and others, uh, in helping, uh, I suppose, to get the Good Friday Agreement uh, along uh, is one of those crowning glories. It's maybe the only really positive intervention that the United States has made uh, in those three decades. So that's why I think uh, you know American politicians are so committed uh, to it, because they see this is one, one area where at least uh, we succeeded. And again, um, the fact that it's bipartisan is really important, because look, uh, the Democrats are likely to lose control of the House of Representatives. Uh, but it is comforting to know that somebody like, for instance, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Republican congressman, is likely to become Speaker of the House in the event the Democrats lose it. Uh, again, he's fully on board uh, with the United States position here. So, uh, again, the, the message here mm-hmm. is that, you know, it's good to have the United States at our back at, at, as our friend, but we desperately don't want uh, a situation where the United States is going to have to unleash the threat uh, that they've put out there. All right. Uh, what else might uh, come down the line, you'd wonder, uh, because uh, there is no government in Northern Ireland, it seems, as though that won't be possible for at least six months, as things stand. And indeed, at that stage, it may <laughs> prove to be uh, impossible again after another election. Uh, and one of the most important elements of the Good Friday Agreement is devolution, uh, power sharing and uh, self-governance. Uh, but uh, that doesn't seem to be the case if uh, the DUP uh, in particular uh, can't uh, 
uh, accept uh, the protocol and won't take their seats. Uh, there will be calls for a border poll. Uh, is that something that you think would get support in the United States? Uh, I, I think it would get support in the United States. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but there is, there's a political dynamic here, Michael, which I think is, is quite interesting. Political unionism is at one with respect to uh, the protocol and the, the, the sea border and everything else. They are at one on that. However, uh, despite what they say, the, the doom and gloom that they forecast about the protocol, the economic signals and the figures from Northern Ireland uh, are actually pretty good. And that makes me wonder, uh, again, while political unionism is united, what those of a unionist persuasion, those businesswomen and businessmen who are on the ground, who might be doing reasonably well at the moment, uh, you know, uh, you know, will there be a bit of a split between their thinking uh, and their thinking of the people who they have elected to Stormont, uh, and especially in contexts where they might be a lot, or might be justifiably frustrated uh, with the unwillingness of uh, unionist politicians to get into uh, government and to do the business? Uh, I think that's going to be very interesting to watch. And you know, again, uh, this is against the backdrop in Northern Ireland. We saw during the campaign. Um, that an awful lot of people up there uh, have moved past the green and orange designations. Uh, so uh, all of that stuff is in this kind of complex uh, pot of stew, but I certainly don't think uh, the advantage is with the DUP. Mm. Yeah, well, it's a, a strange thing as well because uh, uh, they may look uh, at uh, some of uh, the moves that the British government will be taking uh, in the absence of a government in Northern Ireland and the social issues that will be legislated for same-sex marriage and uh, abortion and so on and how that might impact uh, on them politically. Uh, but uh, you do believe uh, that uh, there could be uh, support from the United States for a border poll. Uh, one of uh, the things uh, that... Uh, seems to be preventing that is what is the criteria under the Good Friday Agreement and uh, as Richard Neal said uh, his perception of the Good Friday Agreement at least is that the United States is a a guarantor of that Uh, and uh, perhaps uh, that will feed into uh, the negotiations in trying to bring people back to the table if nothing else. Yeah that that, that could well be the case and I mean I, I suppose I should say you know, when I want to speak about support in America for a border poll, I suspect Irish America uh, would be very much on side uh, with a border poll. But uh, I think those in the know recognize that we're still probably some way off uh, being in a territory where a border poll would pass. Uh, I think that, that that eventuality is down the road still uh, somewhat despite everything that you've outlined. So, mm-hmm. uh, look, all of that is looming in the background. Uh, on this one, and that's why I say uh, that the wind certainly is not with the DUP, uh, and I think that some very interesting conversations must be going on uh, behind closed doors, despite uh, the sort of resoluteness uh, with which they, they, uh, the, the DUP uh, and others and, and the TUV, etc., uh, approach this issue. And I'm, I'm sure uh, it was uh, the shrewd negotiations uh, of uh, Americans uh, in 1998 that helped to come to the Good Friday Agreement, and these are shrewd negotiators. Uh, this nine-strong uh, delegation uh, would all be very uh, high-profile politicians uh, in the United States, uh, and I don't know. If you were a betting man, do you uh, think that uh, there'd be any potential for them to uh, make a a breakthrough given how uh, entrenched people are in this stalemate? 
maybe not overnight, but I, I certainly think their physical, their mere physical presence, don't forget we're just coming out of a pandemic, but their mere physical presence here, uh, I think, sends very, very strong signals. And as you say, uh, they are persuasive, they are capable uh, negotiators. So uh, I think that that will, you know, it, it will at least cause uh, unionists to think this over and give it a long, hard look. Uh, and indeed, more importantly, I suppose, uh, give uh, Boris Johnson and others, uh, you know, a long, hard look about, uh, you know, the whole idea of Brexit was they were going to be free from the shackles of the European Union uh, and that they were going to be, you know, global Britain. Uh, now that that looks to be very much in doubt, um, you know, they need to think about the economic suicide they potentially could be uh, committing here uh, by, you know, going down this path. And again, I think the Americans are, are to the fore on this. Uh, and the other person, Michael, who Shane Ross had a very good piece on Sunday Independent yesterday uh, about Bertie Ahern. And, and again, Bertie Ahern has been quite spoken, outspoken about this. And if there's anybody who knows about negotiations, uh, it is Bertie Ahern. I'd love to see him uh, get involved in all of this because there's nobody better, nobody with more experience, nobody who understands the issues better than he does. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme as always. That's Larry Donnelly, who's a law lecturer at NUI in Galway and uh, a political columnist with uh, the journal.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the Irish Independent is reporting today that postmasters could be paid up to €1,000 a month by the government, uh, possibly uh, as much as 1000 a month, but somewhere between ten and 12000 over the course of a year is under consideration. Let's speak uh, to Kieran McEntee, the Vice President of the Irish Postmasters Union and uh, a postmaster himself, of course, at Three Mile House Post Office in Monaghan. Uh, good morning to you, Kieran, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. I understand the first you heard of this was in the Irish Independent. Yeah, but, but we, we are in negotiation looking for money for the post office this last six months and all our postmasters in Mead, Louth, Cavan, Manor and all over Ireland have been lobbying their local politicians. Yes, we, we are hoping that the Minister is going to announce something, but we haven't been told it's a thousand, like a thousand pound a month. There's nothing like that has been discussed yet. We haven't even got the final. We are looking for 12 million and that's where we want to get 12 million to keep the network open as it is. As Aunt Puss came in there last year and gave eight and a half million to keep to keep the people at the wages they were in 2019. That's what it is. So we're looking for that for post office because business is going away and we're looking to get new businesses off the government uh, in, in coincide with this. That's what we're looking for, to keep all the urban and rural post offices mm. open. OK, well, would 800 or 1,000 a, a, uh, a, a month be enough? Because officials are quoted in this article in uh, the Irish Independent today saying it, it doesn't mean that some post offices will, no, will not close, uh, but that would be because of retirement or personal decisions. Uh, instead, they're saying that they, they shouldn't close uh, because of a, a lack of government support. So will that be enough? We, yeah, if, if we get 12 million, it should be enough for, for, the, for the next three years. We are looking for this on, let's like, say, three years and see how it goes then. And we, because as you know yourself in your station there, and you have given us a lot of our time, that things change. Mm. In, in areas and with the new census areas now could be more people living in rural Ireland and urban Ireland now so the post office could get, be getting more business and we're willing to take on new business to keep the post office op- open in areas and you said there about pr- people retiring 
that's what we don't know. And Puss makes the decision, if I retired here in Freeman House in the morning, do they keep the post office there or not? Mm. That's their decision, not, n- not, the, not the government. But if the government come in and say, no closures of post office, that could happen. But it's very highly unlikely that they will come in and say that. OK, well, um, apparently it will be time-bound, uh, according uh, to the article in the paper, but it is, at the same time, expected to operate for a, a number of years, uh, and it could become permanent. Yes, yeah, that's what we, well, if we get it first, we, we, mm. we'll, we'll work on that first. We've worked hard on this this last four years. People knew that the post office network was under under pressure, and then the, the pandemic came and, it, and knocked it back a, a good bit, a good bit too, by, by banking and all the different, uh, different things. We, we keep cash in local areas. That's the big thing, and people don't realise that. We keep the cash in every area that is spent in locally. You know, so it's it's a vital part of, especially when all the banks are pulling out. We have we have got Bank of Ireland now, and we've got AIB, and that is keeping money in local areas because a lot of places now there is no banks. It's only the post office or the credit union is left there to, to look after the people. Okay, well. Good news if it transpires, I suppose. Well, I hope to God it will. And I, I have to thank your members, your, your station, and I have to thank all the postmasters and postmistresses all around the area that lobbied their local TDs because this would not have happened only for the people that on the ground. And your station gave us great airtime for this. So I hope it's, it's, it's a good news in a, in a week or so's time when the Minister announced it. Right, OK. Uh, and what did you say, 10 million or so? 12 million we're looking for. You're looking for 12 million. Well, I'm just doing a quick calculation here. There's 900 post offices, uh, uh, I think, reading the paper this morning. Uh, if it was to be 12,000 a year to each post office, uh, you'd be looking at just under 11 million. Yes, well, yeah, well, it's close enough, is it? Yeah, yeah, but, but, but I don't want to be, you know, the post office is struggling with three staff. You understand me? And the postmistress is not getting a decent wage herself. You understand me? There's some offices that is big yeah. and doing a lot of business, but they're paying two staff in the post office along with the postmaster, and the postmaster could be in less money than the staff is. That that is the problem. You understand me? Because mm. we are contractors, we get paid by contract. We get paid by transactions, so it's, it's not a wage. And people, a lot of people don't understand that. We get paid by the customer coming through the door okay. using the post office. All right, but uh, on uh, the surface of things, uh, this looks like it could be a lifeline, you reckon? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. If it comes through, and if it comes through, uh, it'll be a lifeline. Certainly a lifeline. Okay. For the post offices. Well, an unusually uh, good conversation <laughs> compared to the ones we've had in recent times. I, and I ask yeah, I'm thanking yeah, you very yeah. much for your airtime. Yeah, thank you, Kieran. Thanks. Uh, nice to talk to you as no, always. Thank, thank you. you. That's uh, Kieran McIntyre, Vice President of the Irish Postmasters Union and a postmaster in Three Mile House Post Office in Monaghan. Thanks uh, to Sarah in Drogheda. She says there needs to be. Thanks for your call that is Sarah she says there needs uh, to be more patrols uh, especially in public places where people walk their dogs regularly to make sure that they're picking up after them she said there was a time when I would have said something to a dog owner who didn't pick up after their dog but I I wouldn't do it now because you'd be afraid to uh, and you'd be afraid of what that person might do there's a a lot of dog owners who have no consideration and they are a law unto themselves what is the point in having a law if nobody is being prosecuted when they break it well that's a, a very good question there's no doubt about it Uh, Paddy Duffy saying there's never been a a good conservative government 
from an Irish perspective, but this particular one is renegade with a, a low life at the top and should be dealt with appropriately. Uh, thank you indeed, uh, Paddy Duffy. Obviously not a, a fan of Boris Johnson. Somebody else uh, in touch with us uh, about dog uh, dogs fouling uh, the pavements. What about the horses who fouled the beaches, uh, says our caller. Uh, Margaret in touch saying, if this country was invaded, uh, again, and she has a capital A on that. She says, she says what would that uh, man expect? This is Jim Roach of the Irish anti-war movement who wants Ireland to continue as a neutral country. She says, what do you expect Irish people to put up their hands and say to the invaders, come in, you're welcome? Not likely. The only warmonger is Putin. He's a murdering tyrant, along with his murdering scumbag army. How could Ukraine defend itself from a power-hungry, greedy bully without help? I don't believe in war, but I do believe in defending yourself or your country, says Margaret. Uh, thank you indeed uh, for that as well. Uh, John and Navin says Putin wanted to denazify Ukraine. Understandable, considering the horrendous suffering and loss of life that Russia endured under the Nazi occupation of their country. Losses on that scale could not register in the minds of people in the Western Hemisphere, especially in America, minds, American minds, whose minds uh, could not comprehend such large numbers. Uh, thank you indeed. Uh, somebody, uh, James actually, James Androhada was texting us about baby formula, big problem in the United States. He says, is there anybody keeping an eye on baby formula for the Irish uh, because America is coming and buying everything we have? Uh, he says, please check it out before it, it becomes a problem here. Thank you indeed, uh, James. Uh, for that uh, then we'd David in touch with us David was whatsapping us and he says um, when you ask a person their name if you see their dog pooing and they haven't been picked up he says you might as well be asking the dog what their name is uh, and David also uh, making comment uh, then on the Northern Ireland Protocol and saying here here to the idea of Bertie Ahern being brought in to get involved in the negotiations. Well thank you indeed David uh, for your message uh, we had a text as well on WhatsApp from Margaret who says it's disgraceful that those two boys didn't get a place in school horrific to think that they had to plead with the Taoiseach and there are many in the same situation. No support, no respite care to give a parent a break. I have a a daughter of 32 with profound additional needs. She stays in part-time residential care. The reason is my husband died five years ago so in order to care for him, my daughter had to find a secure placement as there is no respite care for carers in this country because when he was alive we got two days a month during the weekdays. So where would a self-employed person go during the week? So like like lots of men and women caring for someone with additional needs, they find themselves in the same boat. What would it cost the state if they had to fully provide for people? Thank you indeed, Margaret. Very strong message there that brings our programme to its conclusion today. Thanks, as I say, for WhatsApping us with uh, your message and outlining your situation for us. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.